You may be seated. Can you hear me okay? Okay. I need to begin with an apology because yesterday my family was swimming uh, for many hours at my mom's house and uh, I have water in my ear so I can't really hear very well right now. So uh, if I'm too loud or not loud enough, just give me one of those, okay? Thank you. I want you to imagine that today is your first time coming to this church. Look around and listen. What do you see? What do you hear? You see people, instruments, chairs, among other things, right? And what do you hear? You hear music, laughter, and talking, among other things, right? But are there other things present here that you don't see and hear? Are there real things here today that you're sure to miss on your first visit? If so, what are they? Well, you probably missed the physical pains in people's bodies, but that's here today. It's not easy to see or hear, but it's present in the people in this room. You may have also missed the stressed out parents or the secret addiction, but those are here too. And there are even more severe things present in people here that you're sure to miss. I'm talking about what our culture calls abuse, or what scripture calls oppression. Did you see and hear that in here today? Google defines abuse as treating a person with cruelty or violence, especially regularly or repeatedly. And statistics tell us that 85% of people who get abused are women. And in one-fourth or a quarter of women, uh, sorry, one quarter of women experience severe physical violence from an intimate partner. One in four. Look around. One in four women experience abuse from an intimate partner. And you know what's most shocking about this statistic? The statistic doesn't change inside the church. Not even the evangelical church. Yet sadly, most of us are blowing past these realities on Sunday mornings, aren't we? But, because, but just because you don't see and hear these things, that does not mean they're not present. So let's say you see and hear the more serious troubles like abuse in someone's life. What do you do now? What can we who love and follow Jesus do to help? As his church who are connected to him and an extension of his hands and feet, how do we wisely and lovingly care for victims of abuse? And does the Bible have anything to say? Well, as we read earlier in 
Luke 4, while Jesus was on this earth, he was dedicated to set at liberty or to free those who are oppressed. Yes, Jesus cared and cares for the oppressed and abused. And I think he's still involved in freeing oppressed people through his word and church today. Now, raising the subject of abuse in a crowd of men and women, boys and girls, at church on Sunday morning might seem like an unwritten no-no for a preacher. Such a task requires wisdom, courage, and careful thought. And surely I will not be able to turn over every rock on this subject today. And I won't be able to provide the qualifiers and caveats needed to wisely speak to each person in situation. But I beg your prayers and your patience, even if this is uncomfortable for you. Because as the statistics earlier said, this is a real problem in society and in church. And if God has something to say about it, then we shouldn't shy away from discussing abuse, even if we're uncomfortable with it. If you or a loved one have ever suffered abuse, you know that when the church is silent on these matters, her silence is painful. And speaking and hearing God speak on these matters is a redemptive exercise. It's one way the church can defend the victims of abuse and push back the darkness with the light of Christ and His Word. Because abuse thrives in the darkness, in secrecy, and in silence. And if we're silent and neutral about abuse, we may, church, we may actually do more harm than good to our fellow image bearers. As Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel famously said, I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And if you've ever been abused or are being abused right now, you need to hear a few things today. First of all, what was done to you or is being done to you is wrong. The way people are treating you is not okay. I'm sure you're afraid right now. You probably haven't slept for days. Maybe even weeks or even years. You may think nobody will believe you. And nobody knows the trouble you see. Because the other person is more powerful than you, you may even feel you're in the wrong for questioning them. Friend, if you are being abused, you are not alone in this world. The God of truth sees and hears you. And today we're going to hear how he worked in the life of someone who went through a similar, though not identical, experience as you are. Help and hope is on the way. Now before we dig into the text today, to those of you who are trying to help a victim of abuse right now, I want to heartily recommend a book I'm currently reading. 
in the interest of helping or equipping you for helping. It's called Is It Abuse? A Biblical Guide to Identifying Domestic Abuse and Helping Victims by Darby Strickland. The author is a biblical counselor and a wise guide on abuse. She's helped many women in abusive relationships and has written an immensely helpful book for the church. It's a goldmine of careful Christian thought, biblical wisdom, case studies, resources, and even safety plans to protect the vulnerable from abusers. It even has helpful lists like this. Detecting red flags during dating and a premarital abuse assessment. This is a resource that I think God can use to equip you and his church to wisely help the victims around you. To give you even the, uh, the discernment to know when a relationship is subtly taking on the form of abuse. No one person has all the wisdom on these issues, to be sure, but I think we would do well to listen to those who have walked down this road with others, and Darby Strickland sure has. Now, if you started to get to know someone, and there were hints in their life about abuse, where in the Bible would you go to help them? How would you even get oriented to this theme? Well, first of all, it would be helpful for you to know that the word abuse is only used a few times in the Bible. But the concept of abuse is a running theme in Scripture. And this theme is captured in other words as well, like oppression, oppressed, or oppressor. I'll use the words abuse and oppression interchangeably today. But, I, but, to, but think about the Bible's narrative for a moment. Genesis to, Revelach, uh, to Revelation. This topic is not new for God's people. Throughout history, God's people have been an abused and oppressed people. Ever since Adam's sin, there's been hostility between righteous people and wicked people. And the wicked have been oppressing the righteous. We saw this a few weeks back when Matt Oakham preached on Cain and Abel. And let's be honest, Cain's one of our ancestors. And what's scary is that we all have what it takes within our corrupt hearts to use, misuse, and abuse other fellow humans. Our hatred towards God is usually seen and expressed by how we lash out at our fellow man and fellow women. Each of us has a heart condition with potential for such evils. So how would we know if we were being abusive or if we were in an abusive relationship? Well, let's hear how Darby Strickland describes the oppressor. Oppressors exhibit patterns of demanding and punishing that are entrenched unbending and unrelenting. Oppressors are so invested in their own needs that they believe the primary reason other people exist is to fulfill their demands. When those people fail to do so, they penalize them. Some use aggressive tactics such as yelling, name-calling, throwing objects, or worse. Some use passive tactics such as lying, ignoring their victims, or withdrawing. 
Either way, they use domination and fear to get power so they can live the lives that they want. They seek to control and hurt the so-called offending person. With this definition in mind, where would you go to find the dynamics of abuse or oppression in your Bible? Now, there are many places where it shows up, but for today, for me, we're going to zoom in on the relationship between King Saul and David. Specifically, the narrative from 1 Samuel 16 to 31, which is a massive chunk and section of Scripture, but I highly recommend you take a look at it to understand the subtleties and the dynamics of abuse as Scripture shows it. Now, this is a part of the narrative in David's life and in Saul's life where David is not yet king, but Saul is. Okay, Saul's in power. This section is a wealth of wisdom on oppression. Here's how I'd summarize these 16 chapters. Now, Saul is a jealous, powerful man, tormented by a spirit and determined to kill David. Okay? Now, that's bad enough, but what makes this relationship even more complicated is that Saul is the king of Israel at the time. He's the leader in the community, but not only that. He's also David's father-in-law and his best friend's dad. <laughs> it's complicated. But it gets even more complicated because, you see, David is a man of God. He's a man after God's own heart. And more than just trying to preserve his life from his oppressor Saul, he wants to honor God in all of it. And this doesn't make matters easier. In fact, it makes these realities even more complicated. It's a twisted, unnerving account that serves as an example of the dynamics of abuse in many ways. Now, do you realize what a wellspring of wisdom God's Word truly is? Here's what I mean. What I just summarized was an account that took place thousands of years ago. Okay? But it still rings true today. Because social workers and abuse experts tell us that it's very common for abuse to happen in close relationship. In close relationships. Our oppressors, our abusers may be relatives, family friends, or even family members. I don't say this to spoil your lunch, but to bring an awareness. What I've found encouraging in this, in this narrative is how down-to-earth it actually is. God is on the scene and even working behind the scenes in David's life, even when he's on the run from his abuser, Saul. The living and active God's intervention in David's life involves the help of others as well. There's a team that comes around him. It's God who is coordinating the means through which he meets his ends for David, which is to deliver David from evil and to be glorified as the God who is there for the oppressed. And a critical means that God is working through to provide rescue is his people's prayers. And in the Psalms, we have many of David's prayers to backfill this issue, or sorry, this episode, and to shed light on what is happening in the invisible spiritual realm. 
And one such prayer is Psalm 56. Oppressed believer, may Psalm 56 give voice to your troubles today. And if you are or ever have been a victim of abuse, this sermon and this psalm is for you. So please turn with me to Psalm 56. Now as you do, this uh, is one of two psalms that captures an episode in David's life where he was in great danger and it seemed like the oppressors were closing in on him. These verses capture his thought life during this crisis. Here's the situation. Saul is hell-bent to destroy David. Each day David wakes up, his heart starts racing because the main thing on his mind is to escape the clutches of this evil man, Saul. Day in and day out, he's on the run from him. But today he finds himself in an uninviting town called Gath, a city of the Philistines. Now Gath was the hometown of David's former foe. Maybe you heard of him? His name is, was Goliath. Fleeing from Saul at the end of his rope, David ends up in Gath of all places, surrounded by enemies who know very well who he is. Now he's in double trouble. Saul, he, uh, he's got Saul, the raging lunatic, on his case. But not only that, he's also in enemy territory. And to make matters worse, he probably hasn't slept for days. Does that sound stressful? David's experiences, or sorry, this is what it's like to be on the run from an abusive person like Saul. David's experiences may actually be cathartic for you if you've been traumatized by an abuser. So we'll spend two weeks working through this episode from the angle of two different psalms, Psalm 56 and Psalm 54. These two psalms are the prayers and product of that stressful time in David's life. The reason I started this week with Psalm 56 is because this comes chronologically first. This serves as part one of that episode, and Psalm 34 serves as part two. This gives us the heart of David when he's in the belly of the beast, as it were. But when we come to Psalm 34, we're hearing David's song of thanksgiving on the other side of rescue. But for today, we enter in with David to this scary experience. So let's listen and learn how God is for the oppressed and watch to see the ways he helps his people in these complex evils of abuse through their prayers. And as we do, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that your spirit must work in our hearts for us to see the urgency of these matters, to see the greatness of your love and the greatness of your sovereign work in this world. And Lord, I pray that you'd bring hope to those who feel hopeless right now. Pray that you'd minister and serve them, your word, in ways that only you can do by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see in this text is that believers suffering from oppress oppressors need to call on God with the specifics. 
Look at uh, the beginning of the psalm. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Now, the severity of David's situation is felt at once with these words. The setting is in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20. But he starts his prayer by pleading for God to be gracious to him because his enemies are merciless. He's detailing their attacks, uh, their attacks to his God because he's in real danger from his enemies right now. So he calls on God for grace and help in his trouble. Commenting on these verses with pastoral charm, uh, Charles Spurgeon says this, God will help us from a higher place than our proudest foes can occupy. The greatness of God as the Most High is a fertile source of consolation to weak saints oppressed by mighty enemies. Do you have mighty enemies? Be strengthened by the Lord who is the Most High God. Here's where David gets personal with God. And here's where I get personal with you. Are you being trampled, attacked, or abused by anyone right now? If so, who else knows about it? Have you been specific with anyone about it? Have you called victim services? Have you called out to God? David was oppressed by Saul and his enemies in a different day and age than ours. But what was true back then is still true today. Abuse often gets worse behind closed doors and in secrecy. So so pray for for God's help with your eyes open. Understand that we live in a city and country that has doctors, police officers, and victim service lines, uh, sorry, victim support lines for such crises. David lived in a time that was very different than ours. In David's life, he couldn't just Google victim services from his phone. So recognize your whereabouts and don't let oppression of any kind continue in secret. Speak up and get specific with God and with other people. Keep calling out to God in prayer. And as you do, don't be afraid to let others know what's happening either. Because I believe God often answers prayers by working through people. Maybe he'll use a police officer, a doctor, or a pastor to rescue you from the evil of abuse. I think God is at work as much in the means as he is in the ends. Now let's keep learning from David's prayers. Next we see that believers suffering from oppressors need to call on God with honest faith. Look at verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. David's in enemy territory and they're closing in on him. So what shall he do next? He honestly pours out his heart to God, trusting in God's promises and admitting that he's afraid. I'm sure you can relate if you've ever been oppressed by a powerful evil enemy. There are times that our prayers aren't neat and tidy. There are even times when we struggle to believe what we believe. 
especially if you're in an abusive relationship, you can easily get disoriented and overwhelmed with fear. But don't let this stop you from praying. Pray with others. Ask for prayer and pray the Psalms back to your God. And by the way, this is not the only psalm that showcases abuse. There are many, many, many. But get familiar as well with Psalm 7, Psalm 9, Psalm 10, and Psalm 11. Sometimes all we can do is repeat such prayers back to God or after someone else. And the psalms are a safe place to do just that. Next, David says something curious in verse 4. He says, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What I think this means is that Scripture shapes His praise and forms His faith. God is moving in His prayers as He rehearses His Word. God's presence and Word are strengthening Him as He prays and trusts in God. He admits He's afraid, and then He says, I shall not be afraid. (laughs) Faith is working He's meditating on God's Word, and it's like he's saying, as I trust you, Lord, I shall not be afraid. He even says rhetorically, what can flesh do to me? Well, like we've been, I've been saying so far, Saul, specifically, is doing quite a lot to David. And what can people do to us? They can do a lot of evil towards us, can't they? But no matter how bad it gets, our fellow man won't get the final word. God will. I love what 1 Samuel 23-14 through says. Now remember, this is during the long period of time that David is on the run from Saul. It says this, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And listen here. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Doesn't that put things in perspective? Think on it. Saul was after David every single day, wanting, looking for blood. But God was actively preserving and delivering and protecting David from the evils uh, and the evil plots of Saul every day. He wouldn't give David into the hands of Saul. Who's in control? Even when you're being abused. The Lord God. And believe, I, I believe... This is still true. He's still doing this for His people today in many unseen but real ways. Protecting, preserving, and even delivering His people from the evils of abuse. Now with this in mind, let's keep a close watch on David in prayer. Because there's real grit here and there's real emotion as well. You can even pick up on his anger in his painful realism. All again, very realistic. An ancient book, but very realistic, true to life, as all these things are usually present in the life of the oppressed. Anger, emotion, pain, grit. Next we see believers suffering from oppressors need to call on God with painful realism. 
All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited uh, for my life. For their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. What David was going through was a real crisis. Maybe one of the scariest situations in his life. And if you're being abused, this is probably true of you too. To know that people are actually scheming to do you harm is no small matter. To hear them taunting and seeking to trap you is evil staring you in the face. It's scary. And what makes it almost unbearable, as we see in verse 7, is the thought that they're going to get away with it. Now, church, if someone told you that their enemies were after them in some of the twisted ways that verses 5 through 9 capture, what would you say? Strife, lurking, watching, waiting for me. What would you say? What would you do? This requires wisdom from above, doesn't it? Because abuse is overwhelming, it's exhausting, and it's complicated. And we would do well to avoid pat answers or chipper advice or pragmatic advice like, just do this or just do that. No one person or one situation is the exact same. So with every person and crisis we come across, we must slow down, listen carefully, and ask God for His wisdom and help so we can wisely help abuse victims, the vulnerable. But let me encourage you, Christian, the Bible is a wellspring of wisdom for us, especially in these matters. It speaks truth, light, and hope right into the darkness and chaos of such complex evils as abuse. It's not just a book for the prim and proper. It's a book for the hard knocks of life too. So what happened when David was going through this crisis at this point? Well, as you'll see if you read 1 Samuel 16-31, to God orchestrated a team of people to come around him to his aid. This included his best friend, his wife, his loyal friends and men who came around him to help him in his distress. And don't miss this. God was intimately involved in working for the oppressed through these helpers. It seems to me by this psalm that even though people were helping him, his trust was mainly in his God who moves mountains. But this is true even in the life of the abused today, isn't it? The Lord orchestrates people, neighbors, maybe police officers and pastors, counselors, or crisis workers to help to set them free, to deliver them. His trust was mainly in His God who moved mountains and used means to meet His ends. Now David is, is really added in prayer. He's not holding back about what's really happening. He's in pain. And he's throwing his heavy burdens on the Lord. And God is hearing and bearing His burdens. As David says in Psalm 68, Praise be to the Lord. 
to God our Savior who daily bears our burdens. Aren't you glad the Lord bears our burdens daily? Charles Spurgeon gives insight to David's heart here, saying, The good man is no fool. He sees that he has enemies and that there are many and crafty. Sorry, that they are many and crafty. He sees also his own danger, and then he shows his wisdom by spreading the whole case before the Lord and putting himself under divine protection. If you've ever gone through abuse of any kind, you may feel, as David did, that there is but a step between you and death. Abuse is all-out warfare for your welfare. And you can be honest about the depths of your pain. There is one who hears, sees, and cares. Yes, Jesus cares about your abuse. He he is the one who died for our sins and rose again. But not only that, He's also the mighty Savior of compassion and mercy who is committed to intercede and intervene for His oppressed people to deliver them from evil. How He does this is a mystery, a wonderful mystery. But many of us here can attest to the fact that God indeed answered us and intervene for us when we were in distress and we called on Him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He knows exactly what it's like to be unjustly oppressed at the hands of evil men. This is not a new experience. This is not an experience that Jesus is not familiar with. He lived through it. He ever lives now to make intercession for us, which leads me to the next point. Believers suffering from oppressors need to call on God while connecting with Him. Look at verse 8. It's just getting better and better, this psalm. Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, but my tears uh, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Here are rich comforts for you, oppressed believer. Here are some words of faith for the dark night of your soul. God keeps track of your sleepless nights, your tossings, and your tears. You can't sleep because of your troubles. Believer, take heart. God is not ignoring you. Rather, God gathers all your tears in His bottle. None will be wasted. Believer, He will remember your miseries and meet them with His rich mercies. He cares. Listen again to Charles Spurgeon. We perhaps are so confused after a long course of trouble that we hardly know where we have or where we have not been. But the omniscient and considerate Father of our spirits remembers all in detail. He, for he has counted them over as men count their gold. For even the trial of our faith is precious in his sight. Hold that truth close to your heart, brother and sister in Christ. Now comes the results of prayer. Look at verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. 
in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? David's faith is boosted in his God. He'll soon see for himself that God turned his enemies away from him. And watch closely why this happens in verse 9. He says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. O believer, call on the name of the Lord in your trouble. Do not let your trouble take you away from calling on the Lord. Your calling may result in your enemies turning. Because God works through means to meet His ends. I love what Abigail said to to David when Saul was out for his blood in 1 Samuel 25. This is like a rich, rich gem from Scripture. Check this out. This is what Abigail said to David. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Isn't that just beautiful promise for David in the middle of his trial? God answers the the prayers of his oppressed people. It will not be the same exact way for you as it was for David, I'm sure. But God is at work in this world to deliver his people from evil. Even the evil of abuse. And we have hundreds of other promises to remind us that our God will keep his people safe, especially from our greatest enemy's fang. And this should cause us to pray, verse 9, with confidence. This I know that God is for me. David spoke here of God's goodness in advocating and standing by him in covenant love. And again, he repeats that refrain that his faith and his praise are shaped by God's word. And he will not be afraid ultimately of what man can do. Because the Lord God is in control of all things. And surely Paul picked this up and filled it out when we read Romans 8, when Paul penned Romans 8, 31 to 32. There he said, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Believer, are you being used or abused or misused in any way? Are you questioning if God is for you because of the great troubles around you and in your life? Remember Jesus. Remember the depths of God's love for you in Christ. Remember that God is for you. Know that God is for you. If He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for you, surely He can rescue you from your earthly oppressors. Right? Yes, He can. 
Next, this psalm tells us that believers suffering from oppressors need to call on God with hope for change. I must perform my vows to you, verse 12. O God, I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Here's godly optimism, a.k.a. hope. This is far from a fatalistic or cynical attitude with the way things are. These two verses remind us that, if, that even if people like Saul don't change, God is greater than all and God can change the circumstances for his people. God spared David from his evil abuser Saul. And he's going to testify about it. Now remember, Saul was literally throwing spears at David. Now he's thanking God. David is on the other side. He's thanking God. He's been rescued by God. And he's going to bring up vows and thank offerings to him. He's seen with his own eyes the Lord deliver his soul from death. He even saw God keeping him from falling into the many traps that his attackers set for him. They were conspiring against him. Now he's walking with his head held high with faith in the Lord and joy in God's presence before the face of God in the light of life. Here's hope that things can change because God is in control of all things. Charles Spurgeon speaks of this last phrase in this way. Here is the loftiest reach of a good man's ambition to dwell with God to walk in righteousness before Him, to rejoice in His presence and in the light and glory which it yields. Thus, in this short psalm, we have climbed from the ravenous jaws of the enemy into the light of Jehovah's presence, a path which only faith can tread. Oppressed believer, have you seen God come through for you? Have you seen His good intervention in your life? If so, join David in giving thanks. And if you're somewhere in the middle of this psalm right now, hold on to it until you see the Lord deliver you from evil. Because as my wife said to me this week, God is not done. He sees and hears your cries even when you're afraid. Let's pray.